From the hallowed hallways of Shed High School, from WSHDLP Eastport, this is Round the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane from Eastport, Maine. Stay tuned for historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world. Well, I'm just relaxing here with the latest low-power DJ quarterly that just came out. This issue contains a fold-out section of blueprints for building the perfect house for a radio DJ. I wonder if we could slap this baby together within the next hour and a half of the musical portion of our show. Alright, let's swing into action. We're going to build a brand new house, starting with planning and site preparation and finding general contractors. Then we're going to call in the carpenters, electricians, plumbers, and painters. And this is not going to be just some little shack. This is going to have indoor plumbing and electricity, and it's going to be nicely painted inside and out. And then when it's in move-in condition, at the very end, we might have time to build a sailboat to go with it. So let's head over to the offices of Green Crab Construction with our blueprint and get things rolling. And apropos of our visit, here is Ted Fiorito with the 1934 You're a Builder Upper.
You're a builder-upper, Ted Fiorito from 1934. We're in the offices of the general contracting firm Green Crab Construction because we got the inspiration to build a new house from some blueprints we found in Low Power DJ Quarterly. Here to assist with the site preparation and to lay the foundation of our new digs is Saul Meisels with Anu Olam, We Go to the Land, and Mi Yivne, Who Will Build. Saul Meisels, we go to the land and who will build? We've got our plans for our new house and are working with a reputable contractor who has poured a strong foundation. So it's time to call in the carpenters. Here is the little man with the hammer, Casaloma Orchestra from 1935.
little man with the hammer Cause to hit you with all his might You can bet your boots and your Sunday suits You got a little tight When the little man with the hammer Starts to reorganize your head Then ain't no pills gonna cure your ills You might as well be dead When it's after one and you're having fun You never give a hang But I bet you say at break of day Here come the British with bang bang It's the little man with the hammer Always trying to pick a fight So it's lift your cup with the bottoms up We'll wear them out tonight
A trifling woman I just can't stand They'll wreck the heart of any man You hit the nail right on the head Ernest Tubb just hit the 1947 nail right on the head. Before that, we heard the 1935 Little Man with the Hammer, who showed up courtesy of the Casa Loma Orchestra. We're constructing a new home, and those were some of the carpenters. We plan to have this house built within the hour and a half of the musical portion of our show, so to cheerlead along the effort, here is the Beale Street Gang with their 1946 Raisin the Roof. vi nu tar avsked av varandra gör jag inte som så många andra fagra löften tomma ord jag sparar men om en kyss jag ändå dig ber ge mig en kyss och jag kan bygga de underbara drömmar om dig som jag vill ha 
Ännu kan jag ge dig ringen du en gång ska bära. Ge mig en kyss och torka bort dina tårar jag vill minnas när du är mot mig lov. En gång kan dessa få sekunder bli till lyckostunder. Den kyss du ger ska jag gömma och din gestalt ska vara nära. Alltid och överallt Ge mig en kyss så jag kan bygga De underbara drömmar om dig som jag vill ha Ännu kan jag ge dig ringen du en gång ska bära Det er vidunderligt, det troede vi engang 
Men med tiden lærte vi en ganske anden sang. Vi er bare brækker i det store dumme spil. Uden stor betydning, men nu vil jeg, hvad jeg vil. Jeg vil bygge en verden, men helt for mig selv. Hvis du vil, kan du godt komme med. For måske kan vi der finde lykke og held til at glemme alverdens portræt. Hvis vi tror på hinanden og uden jalousi, bare holder vi løfter som vi spurgte. Kan vi bygge en verden så stor og så rig på den gamle forhærdede jord? We're attempting to build a brand new house in an hour and a half, so while the carpenters are at work, we brought in three sets of cheerleaders. We just heard our Danish team, Victor Cornelius, with Ilo Magnusson, or Hans Soft Quintet, with her 1940 cheer, Jævel Biga in Berden, I Want to Build a World. Before that was the Swedish team, Staffan Broms, with the Andrew Berman's Orchester, with the 1952, Ye Mayen Schiss, So a kiss to build a dream on. And the cheerleading started with the Beale Street Gang with their 1946 Raisin' the Rough. Now this new place we're building is not just some little lean-to or claim shanty. It's going to have actual stairs. And Paul Whiteman has just submitted his 1922 proposal entitled I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise. So let's hear what it says.
That was Paul Whiteman's 1922 proposal to build a stairway to paradise. Now, just to keep everything smooth and on an even keel, here is a report from 1915 Germany called The Carpenter's Plane, presented by Karl Jern. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. This is Round the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane. We just heard Carl Jern's 1915 report about the Carpenter's Plane. This was part of the research going into building our new house. Now this proposed edifice not only will have stairways and electricity, but will feature indoor plumbing. So let's listen to a skit that predates the radio era by about 15 years. Here is Winifred Hare and Percy Clifton in The Plumber from 1908. Plumber by Miss Winifred Harbour and Mr. Percy Clifton. Edison Records. Oh dear, oh dear, whatever shall I do? The place is simply flooded and that plumber hasn't turned up yet. Good gracious, and now the water's coming through the ceiling. Ah, there he is at last. Good morning, Mom. Is this number eight Angel Street? Yes, it is. Are you the plumber? Yes, I'm the plumber right enough, but is this number eight Angel Street? Oh, yes, do be quick. The place is simply flooded. Ah, oh, that's a bad job, Mom. But is this number eight Angel Street when there's a pipe burst? 
Of course it is. Oh, because, you see, there's another angel seat at Poplar, and I didn't know as Alec might have been there. Oh, come in and get to work at once. All right, Mom. There, look. Every room in the house is absolutely ruined. Yes, it is a bit damp, isn't it? I'm afraid you'll have to have new paper. Well, Mom, where is the pipe that's bust? Upstairs, the one leading to the system. Well, supposing we go up and have a look at it. I, I, I say, Mom, you'll excuse me. Is that 12 o'clock striking? It is. Well, it's my dinner hour, so I'll pop off. I'll be back at one. Good heavens, you can't leave a place like this. Excuse me, Mom, I'm a union man, and the union says that the British workmen must have one hour for dinner. But the place is already swamped. Can't help that, Mom. Orders is orders. Oh, please, Tay, and I'll pay for your dinner hour. All right, Mom. I don't mind obliging you this time. Oh, thank you. Come along and bring your tools. Well, I ain't brought any tools, Mom. What? Do you mean to say a plumber comes to work without bringing any tools? Well, you see, my mate's fetching them along. But I say, have you got a saw? Yes. Righto. Have you got any pinches? Yes. That's good. Have you got a bit of oop iron? I think so. Well, then, we can get to work. Well, do hurry up. I say, you pardon me, Mom, but have you got such a thing as a plum? Gracious me, I haven't any fruit in the house. I don't mean that sort of plum. I mean a plum bob. I never heard of such a thing. Well, now, how do you expect me to lay them pipes without a plum? The old thing's ridiculous. I'm afraid you'll have to wait till I've had me dinner. Then my mate will turn up with the tools. Oh, but what's to become of the house? Well, I'll tell you what to do in the meantime, Mom. Get a lump of rag and find the hole in the pipe. Then wrap the rag round tight and hold it there till I come back. I shan't be long, Mom. Good morning. There's the house like this and haven't got a plow.
Round the world is building a new house, and we're in the middle of installing indoor plumbing. Les Brown and his orchestra just presented the 1939 Plumber's Revenge. And before that, we heard a very early skit from 1908 called The Plumber. Now, our new house is going to feature some nice gingerbread decoration on the outside, so let's call in Joe Venuti and his orchestra with the 1933 Jigsaw Blues.
three songs about carpenter's saws. That was the 1923 Sawmill River Road, buzzed through by the Colombian's Dance Orchestra Deluxe. This was preceded by Art Landry and his orchestra with Rip Saw Blues from 1924, and we started the set with the 1933 Jigsaw Blues, Joe Venuti and his orchestra. We're building our dream house today. We've called in the carpenters and plumbers, and now it's time for the wiring to go in. Hal Kemp and his orchestra have just arrived with their 1937 powerhouse. Thank you. 
an electrifying number from 1927 Berlin, The Electric Girl, Tanzorchester Dahos Bella, and now for the 1945 Electric Polka, brought to us by Henry Brose and his orchestra. Thank you. 
installing the wiring in our new house. We just completed our circuit with My Electric Girl, playing symphonic dance orchestra from 1923. And before that, we threw a few sparks from the 1945 electric polka by Henry Brose and his orchestra. You're listening to WSHDLP Esport. This is Round the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane. We laid a good solid foundation, hired competent and hardworking carpenters, installed the plumbing and electricity, and now it's time to bring in the painters. Here comes Jim Andrews with the Golden Gate Orchestra with the 1929 Painting the Clouds with Sunshine.
I'm gay. I never feel that way. I'm only painting the clouds with sunshine. When I hold back a tear to make a smile appear, I'm only painting the clouds with sunshine. Painting the blues, beautiful hues, colored with golden old rose. Playing the clown, trying to drown all of my woes. Some things may not look right, they all turn out all right. If I keep painting the clouds with sunshine. canvas folks on which we all can paint paint any old picture that we may why there's the rich man look at him the poor man the devil the saint and they're all painting pictures every day why you know some painted colors have a wonderful hue while others use colors of strife but i want to tell you that every word every thought every little thing that we do goes down on our canvas of life so come on, folks, and just dip your brush in the sunshine and keep on painting away. Oh, do it now. Make love a duty, and you're bound to find beauty wherever your eyes are going to stray. And life, it's going to seem worthwhile living. Oh, say, folks, skies, they'll never be gray. No, sir, if you just dip your brush in the sunshine, sure to tell you, keep on painting Painting away, everybody keep on painting away. Paint it, Benny, paint it. 
was Ted Lewis and his band who came over to help paint our new house with his 1931 instructions, dip your brush in the sunshine and keep on painting away. Now we want our new house to be cozy, so we're taking beds from two interior decorators. First here is Ted Holtz and the Burt Lowen Orchestra with their 1933 proposal, I'll Build a Nest.
just heard two songs about building a nest because when you construct a house you want it to be cozy and inviting even though it still has that new house smell. So we took bids from two interior decorators. Herman Kennan's Ambassador Orchestra gave us the 1929 Building a Nest for Mary and before that Bert Lowndes Orchestra typed up their 1933 proposal I'll build a nest. We're in the home stretch of building a new house from the ground up in the space of an hour and a half so let's bring some more cheerleaders to help us cross the finish line. Here comes Dave Taras's Palestinian Dance Orchestra with their 1947 medley Nagun Bialik and Anubanu Narzo. We build our homeland.
We're in the home stretch of our endeavor to build a house from the ground up in an hour and a half and have called in the cheerleaders. That was Dave Taurus's Palestinian Dance Orchestra from 1947. We build our homeland. The next three teams who have come to cheer us on are the Leon Belasco Orchestra, the Barney Rap New Englanders, both rousing us with the 1933 cheer, Build a Little Home, which will be followed by Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians with the 1931 Building a Home for You. Here is the Leon Belasco Orchestra. on the floor made of buttercups and clover all our troubles will be over when we build a little home
the thousand little stars. We can decorate the ceiling with an optimistic feeling. We can build a little home, every single little dream. Is a shingle or a rafter, we can paint the house with laughter when we build a little home. It's not a palace, nor a poor house, but the rent is absolutely free. This is my house, but it's your house, if you'll come and live with me with a carpet on the floor. Made of buttercups and clover, all our troubles will be over when we build a little home. Each little space 
I see your smiling face Building a home, building a home for you I've planned a lot, I've worked a lot But that's no work to me For all the time I'm thinking just How pleased you're gonna be And I dream of the fun When the good work is done Building a home, building a home for you Building a Home for You, Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians from 1931, cheering us on as we complete building a new house in the space of an hour and a half. Before that, the Leon Velasco Orchestra and the Barney Rapp New Englanders treated us to the 1933 Build a Little Home. Our carpenters, plumbers, electricians, and painters worked hard, and our project came in on schedule. Okay, now that our new home has been completed and we're moved in, it's time to take the scraps left over and build a sailboat. Here is Dick Todd, the Canadian Bing Crosby, to assist in this endeavor with his 1939, I'm Building a Sailboat of Dreams.
from 1939, Building a Sailboat of Dreams. And that concludes the musical portion of Round the World today. We built a new house from scratch, starting with the blueprints and job site, we poured a foundation, called in the carpenters, plumbers, electricians, and painters, and listened to a Greek chorus of songs about the aspirations of creating a cozy nest. And now, we hear next an early radio episode of Dragnet starring Jack Webb, and first broadcast in 1951, about a man who aspires to create a big building. So let's listen. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. Detective Sergeant, you're assigned a homicide detail. A wealthy society woman in your city vanishes. Two months pass before her disappearance is reported to the police. There's suspicion of foul play. Your job? Investigate. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, February 8th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. We were on the way out from the office, and it was 11.23 a.m. when we got to the ninth floor of the medical dental building, room 912. Dr. Marston? Yes, what is it? Police officers, doctor. like to talk to you. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Daydreaming, I guess. I didn't hear you come in. Well, my name's Friday, doctor. This is my partner, Sergeant Romero. How are you, doctor? How do you do, gentlemen? Yes, sir. It's about the missing persons report on your wife. You filed it yesterday. Yes, that's right, Sergeant. Certainly glad you came. like to have this whole thing straightened out as quickly as possible. I want my wife back with me. Well, we'll do everything we can, Doctor. There's a few things we'd like to have you straighten out for us, if you will. I thought I made it pretty clear in that report I filed yesterday. What is it you have a question about? I've got a copy of the report right here. It says, um, it says your wife disappeared December 9th. That's a little over two months ago, Doctor. Yes, that's correct. December 9th, Sunday night. We were out having dinner, and we had a little argument, and Louise left. I didn't hear from her until the following Friday. That's when she wrote me the first letter. It was from New York. Weren't you a little alarmed to find out your wife had left you and gone east? Well, I wasn't too happy about it, but we'd had a few arguments before. Always figured it did both of us good if Louise got away for a little while. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I wasn't particularly worried. She has friends in New York. I, um, understand your wife didn't stay with her friends this trip, Doctor. No, apparently she didn't. However, I wasn't too concerned. She wrote me letters twice a week, and then she wrote Stanley. That's our son. He's in military school. Louise wrote to him regularly, too. Mm-hmm. And the last letter you got from your wife was uh, about two weeks ago. Yes, sir, exactly two weeks ago. I had the same postmark on it, New York. Well, have you any idea at all where she was staying back there? That's a strange part of it, Sergeant. Louise didn't put a return address on any of the letters. Mm-hmm. I inquired of some of our friends back there, but none of them had seen her. Well, I suppose she was staying at a hotel. I don't know which one, though. Well, about those letters, Doctor, now you're sure that they're in your wife's handwriting. You don't think they could be forgeries, do you? Possible, but I don't think so, Sergeant. I know my wife's handwriting. Do you have all the letters with you, sir? Yes, I'll have my secretary get them before you leave. She's out to lunch now. Oh, right. oh. excuse me, please. Go right ahead. Yes, Dr. Marston. Well, Miss Taylor. Oh, yes, I'm glad you reminded me. Thank you. I'm sorry, officers. There's a denture I have to have ready for one of my patients by this afternoon. Would you mind if I go ahead and work on it while we talk here? No, it's perfectly all right, Doctor. You go right ahead. Do you mind stepping in the lab back here? All right, fine. Go ahead, man. I'm sorry to interrupt everything like this. I do have to have this denture ready, though. We understand, sir. Doctor, um, you say the night your wife Louise disappeared, the two of you had an argument? Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. We were having dinner out at our country club, and I guess Louise had too many cocktails. Gets in a nasty mood when she drinks too much. I asked her to stop drinking. She flared up and walked out of the place. Uh-huh. Did anyone besides yourself see her leave? Oh, yes, two or three couples, friends of ours. When I found out Louise had gone off to New York, I thought, well, it was her way of teaching me a lesson. I wasn't too disturbed about it until her letters stopped coming. Well, how about your son, Stanley? Do you know if he's still getting the letters from his mother? No, he's not. I telephoned him up at his school. He stopped getting letters about the same time I did. Well, let's see. Where did I put that casting ring? Oh, yes, here we are. Then, uh, as far as you know, Doctor, no one at all has actually seen your wife since that night at the country club when she walked out and left you. Mm-hmm. That's correct. As I say, if I hadn't been getting those letters from her every week from New York, I would have called the police in long ago. Would you excuse me, please? Oh, oh, yeah. Quite a bit of oxide in this gold crown I've cast here. A little bit of acid should take care of that. Mm-hmm. Well, what's your theory on all this, Doctor? Your wife leaves suddenly and she goes to New York. She corresponds with you and your son, and then her letters stop coming. What do you think might have happened? Well, frankly, Sergeant, the whole thing's a terrible family mix-up. Get this crown here out of the acid. How do you mean, Doctor, a family mix-up? Well, just that. There's only one reason for Louise disappearing the way she has. Money. Money and that stepfather of hers. Say, uh, would you switch on that small motor there, Sergeant? I've got to polish up this crown and get it in shape. Oh, yeah. Sure. Thank you. Well, what do you mean, Doctor? How does your wife's stepfather fit into all this? Money man. It's about the size of it. I don't know if you're aware of it, but my wife, Louise, was left a considerable amount of money by her aunt. Uh-huh. Well, it was a fortune, as a matter of fact. Louise's stepfather has always been trying to get his hands on it. 
excuse me again. Sure, go ahead. Well, and you think your wife's stepfather is responsible for her disappearance, is that right? Oh, I'm not making any direct accusations, Sergeant. But two days ago, or two days before Louise disappeared, I had $80,000 in bonds signed over to her. Checked around since she's been gone, haven't been able to locate the bonds anywhere. You think she had the bonds with her when she left? Guess I'm sure of it. Oh, pardon me just a moment. Yes, for that. Cast the sharp margins on it. Well, now the eighty thousand dollars worth of bonds, Doctor. Do you have any way of proving that you gave those to your wife? Oh, certainly. I have my wife signed a receipt for them. You're welcome to check it over if you like. Mm-hmm. Well, just how do you think your wife's stepfather figures in there? Is there any indication he might have made a move to get the bonds? Enough to satisfy me, yes. My secretary told me about it. Lenore Dexter. That's the girl in the reception room. Oh, really? Huh? The night after my wife left me at the country club, that would be December 10th, Miss Dexter was at the airport waiting for a friend to arrive on a plane. While she was waiting, she saw my wife and her stepfather cross through the waiting room and go out toward the main gate. Mm-hmm. Your secretary's sure it was really your wife and her stepfather? Well, that's what she told me. You're certainly welcome to talk to her yourself if you like. Yes, and well. Now, besides the bonds, do you know of anything else of value that your wife had with her when she left? No, I don't think so. She had her fur coat on, of course. It's expensive. She was wearing a diamond ring, anniversary gift for me, large, solitaire, worth quite a bit of money. You can get the description from the jeweler. I'll give you his name. All right, Doctor. Your wife's stepfather, we'd like to have his name and address, too. Surely, I'll have my secretary check on both of them right now. All right, Sergeant, you've got to find Louise. I've got to have her back with me. Well, we'll do everything we can, Doctor. We promise you that. I know my wife wouldn't stay away of her own free will, not this long, not at a time like this. How do you mean, sir? Well, let me show you. Uh-huh, here it is. This is the final drawing the architect made for us. What do you think of it? Oh, it's very nice. Yeah, it certainly is. It's got to be our own building. Twelve stories, finest in the city. Uh-huh. Robert A. Marston Building for Professional Men. Louise and I have looked forward to it for a long time. I understand. We settled on the final plans a week before she disappeared. Contractors will start construction in a few weeks now. There's supposed to be a great day in our lives, laying the cornerstone. Yes, I understand. Great day. Robert A. Marston building. (laughs) It's a funny thing, isn't it, officers? How's that? Nothing's very great unless there's somebody to share it with. Before we left the office of Dr. Robert Marston, we talked with his secretary, Miss Lenore Dexter. She confirmed the doctor's statement that on the night after Louise Marston had disappeared from the country club, she had seen both Mrs. Marston and her stepfather at the city's international airport. She said she did not follow them. She had no idea of their destination. Dr. Marston gave us the letters his wife had written him during her absence and also his wife's signed receipt for the $80,000 worth of bonds. Each of the letters was postmarked New York, and the dates on them ranged from December 15th to March 24th. Well, Ben and I drove back to the office and put in a call to the home of the missing woman's stepfather, a Mr. William House. Then we went down the hall to the office of Don Meyer, our handwriting expert. We gave him the letters, which supposedly had been written by Mrs. Marston from New York, along with a signed receipt for the bonds and various other exemplars of her handwriting, which we had obtained from her bank. 
2.50 p.m., the missing woman's stepfather, William House, arrived at the office. He was a tall, graying man, dignified, well-dressed. It's about time the police started looking into this thing. How long does a person have to be missing before there's an investigation? The missing report was only filed yesterday, Mr. House. If you knew your stepdaughter was gone, why didn't you report it? I've had private detectives working on this for a month. Had them checking everything about the case. How much luck have they had? Frankly, not much. But I still got them working on it. Well, getting back to what we have on hand, Mr. House, how about this statement of Dr. Marston's secretary? She says she saw you with Mrs. Marston at the International Airport the night after she disappeared. It's a lie. I haven't been near that airport in six months. It's a lie, and I can prove it. I don't know what Marston's up to, but he isn't going to get away with it. What do you mean by that, sir? I think he's murdered Louise. I think he killed her and buried her somewhere. That's my honest opinion. You sound sure of it. I am sure of it. I knew Marston for what he was the day I met him. He's a fortune hunter, pure and simple. He's after Louise's money, and nothing's going to stop him. Nothing has stopped him. Well, I was under the impression that Dr. Marston was wealthy before he married your stepdaughter. Isn't that right? Certainly not. He was just another poor dentist with a lot of big ideas. All this talk about putting up a building, naming it after himself. Why, Louise fought him on that constantly. He's some kind of crazy egotist. Well, what about the $80,000 in bonds he says he signed over to Mrs. Marston? If he told you that, he's a bigger liar than I thought. Well, he gave us a receipt for the bonds. It was signed by his wife. Can you account for that? Frankly, no. Either he got her signature on it by some kind of trick, or he forged it. I'm sure he never had that much money. Those bonds belong to Louise. And what about the letters Dr. Marston got from his wife? You think they were forged, too? I'm positive they were. Don't you see, officer... It's the perfect cover-up for it. Well, one way or the other, it's not going to take us long to find out the truth. Our handwriting man's checking over the letters and the bond receipt now. Can you fill us in at all on Dr. Marston's background, Mr. House? Only since he's been connected with the family, since he married Louise. I can't tell you how I feel about it, officer. I'm afraid of that man. I'm deathly afraid of him. I know he's done something terrible to Louise. Well, how can you be so sure of it, Mr. House? You must have some basis for your opinion. I just know that's all, Sergeant. If Louise had just disappeared and there wasn't any question of money involved, I wouldn't be so anxious about it. But $80,000 worth of bonds, that'd be enough to tempt Marston to murder his own mother. You don't know him like I do. Well, what do you know about him, sir? There must be something concrete. I can tell you this much, officer. Marston's a man who is capable of murder. Now, I'm a sensible man. I don't walk up and down the street looking for murderers. But I know when we've got one in the family, that much you've got to believe. You will believe it. No, sir. Excuse me just a minute. I'll get that. Homicide Friday. Yeah, Don. All right? All of them? Right. Thank you, Don. Well, that was our handwriting man, Mr. House. Yes? He just finished checking the writing in those letters and on the receipt for the bonds. What did he say? Forgeries? No, sir. They're genuine. Every one of them. As soon as William House left the office, Ben and I began an immediate check of his whereabouts the night after his stepdaughter, Louise Marston, had disappeared. We talked to his friends and associates, members of the staff at the club where he lived. We found a dozen people who backed up House's claim that he was nowhere in the vicinity of the airport the night after Mrs. Marston dropped from sight. We went back and talked with Dr. Marston's secretary, Lenore Dexter. She still insisted that she had actually seen House at the airport with the missing woman. Dr. Marston and the stepfather continued to accuse each other of murder. At our request, repeated efforts were made by the New York police to locate Mrs. Marston. No luck. We checked and rechecked with the maid at the home of the missing woman. 
All she could tell us was that Louise Marston never returned home after leaving the country club, and also that she'd been wearing a fur coat and an expensive diamond solitaire ring. A week passed, and then two weeks. We stayed on it, but there wasn't much progress. The case of Louise Marston came to a virtual standstill. Wednesday, February 24th. Hi, Jill. Morning. Anything new? Yeah, I think we got a break. The Marston case? Oh, what do you got? Made out of Dr. Marston's home. She called first thing this morning. Said Dr. Marston had a little dinner party out there last night. What about it? One of the people there was Marston's secretary, that uh, Lenore Dexter. Oh, yeah. She was wearing a large diamond ring. Yeah? Maid got a good look at the ring. Mm-hmm. Says it's the same one Mrs. Marston was wearing the night she disappeared. You are listening to Dragnet. Authentic cases from official police files. Wednesday, February 24th, 9.15 a.m. Ben and I drove out to the home of Dr. Robert Marston and talked to the maid. She told us that on the previous evening, the doctor had had a small dinner party and that one of the guests was the doctor's secretary, Lenore Dexter. The maid told us that she'd gotten a close look at the diamond ring that Miss Dexter was wearing and that she was sure it was the same ring that the doctor's wife, Louise Marston, had been wearing the night she disappeared. 10.20 a.m. We left the Marston house and headed downtown to the doctor's office in the medical dental building. The office was closed and locked. We got back in the car and drove out Sunset Boulevard to Lenore Dexter's home address. We found the secretary having breakfast alone in her two-room apartment. She explained that on Wednesdays, the doctor never opened his office before noon. We questioned her about the dinner party at the doctor's home the night before. We asked her about the diamond ring that she wore at the party. She became confused and hesitant. Well, what about it, Miss Dexter? Was that your diamond ring you were wearing at the dinner party? No, Sergeant, it wasn't. I guess it belongs to Dr. Marston, either him or his wife. Well, did he give it to you as a present? No. You see, I guess the doctor had a few cocktails before dinner. Maybe one too many. He went upstairs and came down with a ring. He insisted I wear it. He was very insistent. Uh-huh. I didn't want to make a scene, so I put the ring on. I gave it back to the doctor just before we left the house. My boyfriend was with me at the party. We had a terrible argument over it. He's very jealous. Tell me, Miss Dexter, did Dr. Marston have any special reason for wanting you to wear the ring? No. He just said he liked me and that I was pretty and I ought to have pretty things. My boyfriend didn't like him at all. Well, had you ever seen that particular diamond ring, Miss Dexter? I mean, before last night? Well, I don't know, Sergeant. I think so. I'm not sure. Well, where do you think you saw the ring before? Mrs. Marston. I think I saw her wearing it once. Was she wearing it the night you were supposed to have seen her at the airport? I don't know what you mean. I didn't notice the ring, but I saw Mrs. Marston at the airport. I'd like to have you think this thing out for yourself, Miss Dexter. Mrs. Marston's been gone for almost three months now, and there's a strong possibility that she might have been murdered. You can make up your own mind about it, Miss. If you're not involved in that disappearance, I'd advise you to tell us the truth. Might save you a lot of trouble. Miss Dexter? You mean about my seeing Mr. House at the airport with the doctor's wife the night after she disappeared? Yes, ma'am, that's right. You sure that's the truth? I didn't want to get involved, Sergeant. I didn't want any part of it. You mean you didn't see Mrs. Marston and her stepfather at the airport that night that you made it all up? I didn't make it up, Sergeant. I swear I didn't. He told me what to say. He said to do it as a favor for him. Who's that, miss? Dr. Marston. We continued to question the secretary, Lenore Dexter. 
She confessed that Dr. Marston had directed her to tell the story about seeing Louise Marston and her stepfather, William House, at the International Airport. It was all a complete lie. She said that Marston had explained that the whole thing was just a practical joke, that it didn't mean anything. When Mrs. Marston was officially reported missing, she thought of going to the police, but Marston had frightened her out of taking any such action. The only other suspicious thing she could recall about Mrs. Marston's disappearance was a conversation between the doctor and his architect, uh, Mr. Harold Whitmore. He was the architect who had planned and designed the projected Robert A. Marston building for professional men. Well, the secretary told us the doctor's conversation with the architect had taken place about a month before Mrs. Marston's disappearance and that she'd heard the doctor mention to the architect something about New York and a packet of letters. Lenore Dexter was taken downtown where she gave us a complete signed statement. Ben and I got in the car and drove to the offices of architect Harold Whitmore over on South Hope Street. He was a tall, florid-faced man, very cooperative. Yeah, I remember that conversation with Dr. Marston. He gave me a bunch of letters, at least a couple of dozen anyway. They were addressed to the doctor and his little boy, Stanley. What do you want you to do with the letters, Mr. Whitmore? He asked me if I had any friends in New York, and I said I did. Then he said he was playing some kind of practical joke on his wife and son. He gave me the letters and asked me if I'd send them to a friend in New York and have him mail them back one at a time. You agreed to do that? Yeah, that's right. The letters were all sealed and stamped, all in order, the way they were supposed to be mailed. I just sent him back to this friend of mine, Bob Rogers, in New York. Forgot all about it. Mm-hmm. Mr. Whitmore, how long have you known Dr. Marston? Very long? No, not too long, only in a business way. He wants to put up this office building of his, and I'm handling the job for him. He's sure nuts on the subject. Can't wait till we start construction on the job. I think his life depended on it. You know much about his personal life? Where'd you first meet him? Let's see, I think it was around October of last year. He and Mrs. Marston were building a summer place down at Malibu, and I helped out with the plans. The doctor was always hanging around there, helping out with the work whenever he could. Uh-huh. And that's the only previous contact that you had with him, huh? And that's about all, yeah, building the beach house. Dr. Marston thought he had some new ideas about building a new type basement in the place. That's so? Yeah, not a bad job on a cellar for an amateur. Used enough cement on it to sink a battleship. Now, just a second, Mr. Whitmore. Did Dr. Marston cement in the basement while the house was being built? Is that... No, no, about a couple of months later, around the middle of December, I think. Do you remember the date exactly? When he did the cement work? Mm, not exactly. About the 12th or 13th of December, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right after his wife disappeared. Wednesday, February 24th, 1.30 p.m. Ben and I picked up Dr. Robert Marston and brought him downtown to the office. We questioned him for an hour and informed him of the evidence against him. Despite the statement of architect Harold Whitmore, the doctor insisted he was innocent of any crime connected with the disappearance of his wife. We contacted the New York Police Department and asked them to check on architect Whitmore's friend, Robert E. Rogers. A special detail of men was dispatched to the summer home at Malibu to see what they could find. Half an hour later, Dr. Robert Marston was placed in a car and Ben and I drove him to the Malibu home. We continued questioning him during the drive, but he refused to make a statement of any kind. On our arrival at the beach cottage, we found Marston's young son, Stanley, together with a maid and the family butler. We took Dr. Marston downstairs to the basement. The man had a large section of the cement flooring ripped up. They were digging. In the room up above, we could hear young Stanley Marston playing on a toy harmonica. I'd like to know something, Sergeant, just for my information. Yes, sir? Why do you think I'd kill my wife? Why do you think I'd do such a thing? We're not sure yet if you did kill her. And why do you have these men doing this? Digging up the whole basement. Why do you think I killed her? 
You won't find anything. You might as well tell them to stop now. They won't find anything. I explained everything to you. Why can't you take my word for it? Well, you still haven't explained about those letters, why you had them sent to New York, why you had them mailed back here one at a time. It's got nothing to do with it. Why can't you believe me? Your wife didn't disappear without a reason, Doctor, and we'd like to know what the reason is. I told you. I told you a dozen times over. You know what happened. We were at the country club, Louise and I. She was drinking a lot. I told her to lay off. We had an argument. She walked out. That's all. She walked out. I didn't see her anymore. Yes, sir. We'll have it all worked out. Don't worry about it. Why can't that maid look after the boy up there? Making all that noise. Why can't you take him out somewhere down to the beach? Romero? Yeah? I'll see you a minute. Oh, yeah, right. Sergeant? What do you want me to say? What's that? They've found her. You know that. Louise. Right where I buried her. What do you want me to say? Well, that's up to you. Yes, you wouldn't understand, would you, Sergeant? The only thing I ever wanted in my life. She wouldn't let me have it. The building. Robert A. Marston building. For professional men. You mean your wife wouldn't give you the money for it? That's why you quarreled, is that it? I tried to tell her. It was one fight after another. She didn't know how much it meant to me. And that's why you killed her, huh? I followed her outside the country club that night. Drove her to my office. She was pretty drunk. Mm-hmm. We pretended she was on a trip to New York. I had her write the letters. Had her sign the receipt for the bonds. Wasn't hard to do. How'd you kill her? Put my hands around her throat. Didn't stop until she was dead. Joe? Yeah, man. Hey, Farner. You ready to go, Doctor? All right. It was a dream of a lifetime, Sergeant. I almost had it. The Robert A. Marston building. Finest in the city. Yeah. You want to come upstairs, Doctor? We'll get you coat. You'll try to understand, won't you? I wanted something that would last. My own building. My name on it. Something you'd remember. Yeah. That's the reason I killed Louise. She didn't want me to have it. My own building. Something that would last. Make the people remember. Well, you made it, Doctor. Why worry? What? You don't need a building. They'll remember you. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 3rd, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Robert Alexander Marston was charged with murder in the first degree. Ten days after his trial opened in Superior Court, the suspect took his own life in his jail cell by hanging. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. This concludes today's show. On behalf of around the world staff of researchers, recording engineers, interns, and Victrola technicians, this is Cracklin' Jane. Thank you, and see you next week. <laughs>